Hi, everyone. Welcome to Seth's Coaching Podcast. I'm Nicole. And I'm Jake. This week, uh, we're going to be talking about and diving into everything related to nutrition and what that means for the most serious athlete who's running 100 miles plus a week down to the athlete who likes to run a 5K on the weekend. And we're going to talk about, are you eating enough? Is your eating holding you back? Is your weight holding you back? Well, let's find out. All right. So in your opinion, what is the biggest stigma in athletics and sports in the shortish amount of time you've been in the field? That athletes need to look skinny and starve themselves in order to perform well. Which is obviously not the case, as we've seen in a lot of different examples in the past, right? Yes, absolutely. So starving yourself is not a key to athletic success. Which is what we're going to be talking about today. Yes, it is. So we're going to talk about energy and endurance sports. So for our podcast viewers, we or our podcast listeners, we have everything, all the slides are going to be up on our website, but uh, this is definitely going to be one where it's better viewed as a vlog because we have some slides to go along with today's discussion just as we kind of talk through things. There's going to be some formulas and mathematical equations. I promise they're simple ones, they're easy ones, but uh, definitely might be better with some visual aids. And we'll do just fine explaining every detail, what we're talking about so that you can, if you're listening on your drive or if you're listening uh, where you can't view these at the same time, um, hopefully you'll understand in a, a simple context. It's not as complicated as I think it's going to sound at the first few times we start uh, rolling into our topic today. Yeah, so today we'll talk a little bit about energy balance, energy availability, relative energy deficiency in sport or the female athlete triad, and then talk about some of the psychological stigmas around eating and uh, endurance sports. Yeah, and a lot of people already know, and I think have already recognized going through this little list that you just made, what REDS is. But the other elements of it, which are are really important to understanding quite how this works, is energy balance and energy availability. Not a lot of people have a grasp on, on what that means just yet. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about it. And let's start off by saying that as endurance athletes, we need to eat a lot. Because beyond just your general population or even your power athletes that aren't necessarily burning as much metabolically during their workout, uh, endurance athletes tend to burn quite a few calories. So in order to perform and recover at our best, we've got to replace those. Right. All right. So let's start off with energy balance and defining what is energy balance. That is the simple when your calories in are equal to your calories out. That is the state of energy balance. And when you're in energy balance, then in theory, you're not changing weights at all. Sure, you can have some fluctuations there, but energy-wise, if you're eating as much as you are losing through all the various mechanisms, then you are going to be in energy balance. Energy balance means that you are not going to be changing weights. So isn't it, that's not just a myth, right? That calories in equals calories out. There's some deviations off of it that I think people exploit in certain ways to sell certain diet products. But you're saying that 
truly at the base of it all, calories in equals calories out, right? Yes. The laws of thermodynamics and energy say that you cannot create nor destroy energy. So if I eat 500,000 calories, that's a lot of calories, yeah, okay. then uh, yeah. So if I'm not burning 500,000 calories, I'm going to gain some weight. There are some caveats to that though, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit, but things might not make quite as clear cut and dry sense as if uh, if you're looking at our slides, we've got a nice little scale there for you. So if you add calories on the inside, that actually can affect how you're burning calories on the outside. So let's talk a little bit about, so we said that calories in equals calories out is the state of energy balance. We'll talk a little bit about what do those equate to. So your calories in is your total daily energy intake, also known as how much food you eat. And then your calories burnt is your total daily calorie, or excuse me, total daily energy expenditure. And that's where it gets a little bit more complex. The body is not quite as simple as a, uh, as just a scale where you can dump calories in and the scale gets heavier. Your body does have a little bit of say to it and it's got some variability to it. So you're saying that I might be burning more than 600 calories on that six mile run in addition to my day. Yes, absolutely. And it depends on your six mile run too. So if you're doing six miles, but they're all downhill, or you're doing six miles on an Alter G treadmill, then you're going to burn fewer calories than if you're doing six uphill miles in the mountains. Yeah, I wish all my hills were downhill running. <laughs> so let's break it down a little bit. The Where it comes into some question is what comprises that energy expenditure? You know, energy intake is pretty good. It's pretty simple. Food is food. But your day, total daily energy expenditure has four different components that we'll look at. So starting at the bottom up, you've got your resting metabolic rate, you've got your non-exercise activity thermogenesis or your non-exercise activity expenditure, you've got your thermic effective food, and then you have your exercise uh, energy expenditure. And so all of these different things kind of play into what you are burning. And when you add the four components up, then that's where we get your total daily energy expenditure. So let's dive in a little bit and let's look at the different components in detail. So we'll start with resting metabolic rate, which the textbooks will say is the majority of what you burn in a day. However, that is not always the case in athletes. So if your RMR is typically in like the 15 to 18, 1900 calorie range for most endurance athletes, well, if you go for a 26 mile run, then that's gonna burn more calories than your RMR. So that's fun little fact when you see that your RMR is the majority of your calories, not necessarily true on some of those really big endurance workout days. At its state, RMR, resting metabolic rate, is what you burn at rest. So if you were in a coma, then this is essentially what you would burn. Uh, it's not quite because of the thermic effective food that we'll talk about in a second, but uh, basically sitting in bed all day, not eating anything, you're going to burn your RMR. And there's a few different ways that we can go about understanding that and measuring. So first is exhaled gases. This is kind of the gold standard. You sit in a chair at rest, uh, relax, and they put a mask over your face. It measures the amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide that you are breathing in, and then the amount that you are breathing out. And by understanding how much oxygen your body is burning at rest, then we can understand just how many calories you're burning at rest. And it's kind of the gold standard. 
And we've done, we've both have done that test sitting in the chair and we found it to be relatively accurate based on, at the time we were counting calories, we were estimating how much we burnt in heavy volume weeks um, in addition to our MR. And we found that that was a relatively accurate test to do. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely, it's the gold standard in accuracy mm -hmm. for resting metabolic rate. Though I will say I had to do mine twice because someone kept making me giggle in the first test. And apparently giggling is something that throws off the accuracy of the test. That's uh, what I'm there for. Uh, then looking at another way that we can estimate that, it's with some uh, equations. So there are quite a few different non-weight-based equations, but unfortunately these tend to be wildly inaccurate because uh, they're kind of they're saying okay you're this tall and this old and uh, I'm going to take a wild guess and it's going to be that number and that number even if there is some validity to how much you're burning with that number uh, a lot of the studies use like your population curve it might be a a guesstimate for you know, the majority of the population might fit in that range, but the accuracy range is going to be plus or minus 20 or 30%, which is not accurate enough for our cases here. And then looking at athletes is going to be a big deal as well, because athletes tend to be significantly more muscular. Muscle burns energy. Uh, so muscle is an active uh, part of your body composition. Muscle at rest is burning energy. Fat is not. So athletes who are more muscular means that you're 180 pound athlete who is all muscle is going to be burning, burning a lot more calories at rest in their resting metabolic rate than your 180 pound overweight couch potato. So the non-weight based equations or uh, even some of the weight based equations that are more geared for the general population and don't take into account your body fat percentage, those are going to be a lot less accurate. Yeah. And those are the ones you find on like livestrong.com that you input one little number about yourself and it generates a, a off of a calculator it generates a random number of calories that you know you need to eat in a day and honestly that could be really underestimating or really overestimating depending like you said on on age and weight and where you're at in your in your life and all and um that's really frustrating i get it having kind of a a, a roundabout calculator to give you an idea but if you're serious about getting um, in energy balance and you're serious about eating the right amount of calories, that could be a really frustrating way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we really prefer the weight-based equations and particularly the Cunningham equation, which the scientific literature points to is one of the most accurate for relatively young athletes. And I'll cite the source there. It's in the PowerPoint. But uh, yeah, so the Cunningham equation is your resting metabolic rate in kilocalories per day is equal to 500 plus 22 times your lean body mass. And lean body mass is your everything that's not fat. So that's gonna be your muscle mass, your water, your bone, et cetera. So the way that we can kind of use that is if you've ever had your body fat measured, and we'll go to down that rabbit trail in just a moment, but if you've had your body fat measured and you are, let's say 10% body fat, then you're 150 pounds, 10% body fat. You subtract 10% from that 150 pounds, and that means that you have a 135 pounds lean body mass. And I should note that this, in this case, lean body mass is in kilograms, so you'd have to divide that by 2.2. So if I wanted to figure out my 
uh, RMR right now, walk me through how would I start this just for our listeners who are, are not viewing it at the same time? Yeah. So your resting metabolic rate, you're going to take your lean body mass in kilograms. And let's say that's... Let's start with pounds. Most of our listeners pounds, are going to be yeah. in the United States and we issue the metric system, unlike the rest of the world. <laughs> so take your weight in pounds. So let's say we do have examples that we'll pull up uh, throughout this PowerPoint. We're going to use the same examples throughout, but let's say uh, 150 pound female and 20% body fat. So we're going to determine our lean body mass by subtracting 20% of 150 from 150. So 20% is 30 pounds of 150. Subtract that means uh, you have 120 pounds of lean body mass. And then we're going to divide that by 2.2, which um, I did not write down. Mm. Uh, so in that case, you are take that number, which is your lean body mass in kilograms, and multiply it by 22. Then add 500 to that, and that's going to be your lean body mass. So we started at, you said 120 pounds of lean body mass divided by 2.2. Yep. And then... Multiply that by 22. Multiply by 22. And then add 500. Add 500. So for that athlete, we're talking about 1,700. Exactly. As an and uh, for people who are looking at our slides, I did the math slightly different. So instead of subtracting the fat mass, all I did is multiply by the percentage of um, lean body mass. So if you're 20% body fat, that means you're 80% lean body mass. So we took those weight numbers and multiplied them by 0.8, if you're looking at our slides here. So that is the Cunningham equation. That's our best recommendation for measuring your resting metabolic rate, uh, excuse me, estimating, not measuring. Uh, though, let's talk a little bit about activity trackers. So that is another way that you can estimate your, um, your resting metabolic rate. However, we must caveat that there's a lot of inaccuracy. There's a lot of uh, body trackers that are just going to take a quick dab at it. Your off-the-mill Fitbit on your calorie count is not going to be super accurate. Uh, you'll get a little bit more accuracy if you're just walking. Uh, walking and running tend to be the most accurate because those are some of the easiest activities to measure. Essentially, one step is a very similar amount of calories every time, but swimming and cycling are much less so. And we've seen a little bit of that. We've got one of the most accurate trackers, I think, on the market right now, which is the, the Aura Rings that we both wear. Um, and those have been spectacular, but we've noticed some differences. And like you said, when you go running, your activity tracker and your Aura will tell you, you've had high activity for your 10-mile run. But if I go for a four-mile swim, it's going to tell me I've had moderate to low activity. So keeping in mind that, yes, the Fitbits might not be spectacular, but nothing right now is perfect without an equation, without lab testing results. And that's just one of the few things we have to deal with as athletes if we're looking to calculate our RMR, looking to calculate our caloric needs, looking to calculate our, yeah. our numbers in our lives. And you can always take the activity trackers and then compare them to your uh, Cunningham equation results and kind of go from there. So I promised we'd talk a little bit about body fat estimation. So uh, talking, let's talk most accurate down to least accurate um, measurements. So your most accurate, the gold standard is the dual energy X-ray or DEXA scan. 
that's kind of the gold standard followed and that's we're talking plus or minus one to two percent accuracy for a DEXA scan relatively similar for hydrostatic weighing which is underwater weighing though uh, I would be surprised to see a lot of that around because very less, yeah, less common for that. Yeah, one. DEXA yeah. is uh, much more prevalent. Uh, then after that, you're looking at things like the BOD pod, which is a multi-compartment system that's measuring uh, your volume based on displaced air. That's looking in the two or three percent uh, error range. And we'll say that the BOD pod um, for at least, and I'm not sure if this is. A similar experience for all females, but when I got my bod pod testing, um, I was also on hormonal birth control um, and retaining a lot of water, and that actually skewed my results a ton. Um, we were talking, I got results that said I was morbidly obese, which of course is not the case. So um, just as a disclaimer, it says two to three percent ish, um, but for some of us who may retain water or living in a hot place like Arizona, uh, and we're we're drinking a ton of water and retaining, or we have a lot of salt retainability, that could skew some results there. Yeah, and this is not the case for the DEXA scan, mm -hmm. uh, or I think for hydrostatic weighing, mm -hmm. but for every other body fat estimation mechanism, then your hydration status is going to affect the results. Yeah. So. If you're retaining water or if you're massively dehydrated, then you're going to see skewed results and uh, decreased accuracy off of that. So uh, moving down the line in accuracy, we are looking at some things like the bioelectrical impedance, uh, BIA. So you might have a body fat scale. Uh, those things are sending a very harmless uh, electrical current through your body and the way your muscle reacts is different than the way your fat reacts and they can kind of take an estimate from there Accuracy on those is going to vary. Hydration status is going to vary. Um, but your best bet is really looking at take the measurements the same time every day. Uh, you'll see dramatic changes from day to day. I know if I am retaining a lot of water, if I had a really salty dinner, then my body fat scale says that I am massively obese <laughs> or much more uh, high body fat than if I'm less hydrated or along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and then Last is going to be calipers. Uh, that is one of the least accurate mechanisms. Yeah, we're living in the 1970s with those things. Yeah, and the more skinfold measurements you can take, the more accurate it's going to be. So if you're looking at a seven plus measurement, then that's going to be more accurate than a three measurement. But uh, again, especially in the age of bioelectrical impedance, that's going to be a little bit more accurate. Okay, so we're on to our first example. Let's introduce our example athletes. Uh, our example athletes are going to look a little bit similar to what Nicole and I look like uh, with some numbers rounded to make math easier. But first, uh, so our athlete A, Nicole? Yep, so athlete A is a 150-pound female with a 20% body fat. And athlete B is a 155-pound male with 10% body fat. And we are looking here at, we've just talked through the RMR, so we're going to give you those numbers. And... Uh, we'll just kind of spit out the gonculator for you instead of making you do the math yourself. But the athlete A is going to burn how many calories, Nicole? Uh, they're burning 1,700 total. For their RMR. RMR. Mm -hmm. uh, and then athlete B, our male, is going to be burning about 1,895 calories for his RMR. So let's talk next. Our next component of energy expenditure is your non-exercise activity expenditure. So neat, neat. <laughs> so 
your neat is what happens in life, what you do, what you burn doing life, but not specifically exercise. So, so like walking up the stairs here in our house. Yes. Cleaning the kitchen, doing the laundry, walking around, especially depending on what your job is. You know, if you're a teacher standing on your feet all day, if you're a walking door-to-door mailman, you know, you're obviously going to burn significantly more calories in your non-exercise activity than if you are uh, sedentary working from home like Nicole and I mostly are, uh, like a lot of people are in, in these strange times. But uh, it's very variable. It's the largest variability in all of these components. Uh, but we'll look at, we're just kind of, for the nature of our example, we're tossing in a relatively sedentary is in the two to 300 calorie range. So thinking if you're mostly sitting at a desk all day, not doing a ton of activity at home, uh, walking around a bit, not a ton, you're not walking four and a half miles from the parking lot to your office space like we do sometimes when the work is full but um yeah so we're just going to slap on there for our example we're going to use a nice round 300 calories for our meat and now let's talk about the thermic effect of food so i don't know if you know this but when you eat food your body has to expend energy in order to process that food you got to spend money to make money. <laughs> is that the same for all foods? Yes. Okay. The, there is a thermic effect of food for all foods, but your different macronutrients have a different thermic effect of food. So you're saying like protein is a lot different than fat or carbohydrates? Yes. Yeah. Fat is the easiest to store. So if you drink 100 calories of oil, then it's only going to take 3% of those calories to store that. So of the 100 calories of oil you just drank, then you're going to have 97% of that is stored in your body. Carbohydrates are a little bit higher cost. So it takes about 7% of the banana that you eat, also about 100 calories, to um, convert that into energy. So 93 out of the 100 calories. Protein is the biggest. So if you got a 100 calorie protein shake, uh, looking at about 11 grams of protein there, then you're only going to get 76% uh, of those calories. So you're going to get 76 calories out of your 100 calorie protein shake because protein takes a lot of calories consumed in order to break down and store them. Okay. So a good rule of thumb average for most diets is about the 10% mark. If you are eating a very high protein diet, then uh, you might want to raise that number if you're eating a very low protein, uh, high fat diet, then you're going to lower that mark a little bit. But we're going to use 10% for our models here. So we're sitting at a 1700 RMR for athlete A, uh, a 300 calorie expenditure for meat, and a 330 calorie expenditure for TEF. TEF. <laughs> thermic effect of food. And to know what your thermic effect of food is, you have to know what you've eaten in a day. So this is going to vary a little bit. This is, like I said, when uh, your energy balance isn't quite that neat, um, that neat, pure, or neat uh, scale there. So when you eat 100 calories, you're going to wind up burning around about 10% of them to store that amount of calories. So we took some stabs at about what we think athlete A and athlete B are going to eat in the day. So we put in 3,300 calories for athlete A and 3,800 for athlete B, our male. So Athlete B sitting at 1895 for his RMR, 300 neat, and then 380 for the thermic effect of food. Now let's talk about the most 
fun component and the part that athletes really care the most about your exercise, activity, thermogenesis, or eat. And thermogenesis is a fancy way of saying burning energy. So uh, again, this is what you burn during exercise. And since we are triathlon focused, we will talk about swimming, biking, and running, though you obviously burn calories doing quite a few different exercise activities. So for swimming, uh, stealing this from Asker Yoikendrup's uh, Sport Nutrition, and we'll link that in the uh, description. You can see it on the slide there. But based on your weight uh, and for the different types and different speeds, we're looking at around about 11 and a half kilocalories per minute of swimming freestyle. Uh, and that's your minutes of swimming, not your minutes of sitting by the side of the pool, which is my favorite part of swimming. <laughs> um, so swimming is going to be a little bit more variable. Biking, your power meter is really, really good at uh, measuring your energy expenditure. And the reason for that is a fun quirk of anatomy. So our bodies are about one quarter efficient and you're transferring about one quarter of your mechanical energy into the bike. So what that means is they are equal. So when you see the calories burned, when you have a power meter on your bike, then that's going to be a very accurate number. If you don't, then your watches or whatever uh, head unit you have is probably just going off of heart rate, and that's going to be significantly less accurate. So um, then the last is running, and that is really easy with distance. So the amount of calories burned in running is a measure of work done. So a lot of the time you will see, like my Garmin usually says that I burned like 400 calories on a 10 mile run or something outrageous because my heart rate is typically pretty low. I mean, doing those in an aerobic zone. So when my heart rate is low, that's what my Garmin uses to estimate how many calories I've burned. And that's not the most accurate way to do that. Uh, rather, there's a direct relationship by distance and it's pretty simple. You burn one calorie per kilogram per kilometer. So uh, if you are American, then that means to you that you take your distance in miles and multiply that by 1.609 to convert to kilometers. And then you take your weight in pounds and you divide it by 2.2 to get your uh, kilograms. And that's how you can estimate how many calories you've burned. It winds up being about 100 or just over 100 per mile for most people. But it makes sense if you're very, very light, like if you are a child and you're 75 pounds, then you're going to be burning fewer calories than if you are an adult or if you are running with a weight vest or something like that, uh, which detrimental to your knees. Yes, but uh, you would certainly burn more calories because you're carrying more weight. So let's go ahead and look at what that looks like in our examples here. Uh, and we've got a little bit of a difference here. So we've got our triathlete and uh, our female. Nicole, you want to run us through? Yep. So our athlete, who again is 150 pounds with a 20% body fat, uh, with an RMR of 1,700, a NEAT of 300, a TEF of 330, and an EAT of uh, 658 for a six-mile run and 600 for a one-hour swim is uh, rounding up the total at 3,588 for the day. Nice. And this is actually, if we're going to, I know we said it was similar to each of us. Um, today, I did a four-mile run and a one-hour swim. So this total here is not much different than what I need to be eating today, which is probably why I had 1,200 calories at dinner. Yes. 
Yeah, and then for our mail, uh, we're looking at a 10 mile run. So again, to math those out, we took that 10, multiplied it into kilometers, took the weight, converted it into, um, into kilograms, and we get about 1,133 calories for the run. And our um, notional male athlete did a one hour bike for 600 calories. So when we add that up with 380 calories of thermic effective food, 300 calories of meat, and then 18, excuse me, then 1895 for our RMR, we're looking at 4,308 calories to round out the day. So uh, basically to go back to our energy balance and looking at our scales, if our athletes are eating, if our athlete A, our female is eating 3,588-ish calories, and our male is eating about 4,300 calories, then they're going to be in energy balance. And good things can happen in energy balance, right, as an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about that in energy availability, which is a really cool way to uh, think about the way that our bodies use energy. But energy balance is generally where we want to be. If you are actively trying to lose weight, then you want to be in a little bit of an energy deficit. But that's not something that we would necessarily recommend for most athletes, particularly those who are training very hard. So training at high intensity and trying to cut calories is a recipe for disaster. And we'll talk about that more. So let's look at our energy availability. So what exactly is energy availability? You can think of it as the energy that your body needs in order to live its best life. <laughs> So it is everything that is not required for workouts. So what your body needs to do normal life things. And feel good doing it. Yeah. So that's going to include your, in, if we're talking in the uh, exercise expenditure or your energy expenditure compartments, this is going to be your RMR, your thermic effective food, and your meat all combined in. But energy availability looks at it a little bit differently and expresses it as energy availability in kilocalories per kilograms of fat-free mass. Scientists really like the metric system, so bear with me for those Americans. So the way that we equate that is you take the energy that you eat, you subtract how much you burn in exercise, and then you divide it by your fat-free mass. So again, going back to that lean body mass, everything that's not fat in your body. And then the standards, your what you want to hit in a day, 40 to 45 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass. From here on out, I'm just going to refer to it as 40 mm -hmm. to 45 uh, energy availability, but those are units, uh, kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass. Then if we look at low energy availability, which will come up significantly in our red discussion in the next section, that is going to be 30 or fewer kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass on your energy availability. So let's go back to our two examples. So we're taking here our energy consumed out of the energy balance section. So our ending numbers for athlete A was? Uh, 3,588. And for athlete B, our male, 4,308. We are subtracting from that the amount of energy burned during their workouts. And then we are dividing that by their fat-free mass. So you'll see in our slides, we take the 150 for athlete A divided by 2.2 to make it kilograms. And then she has 20% body fat, which means that she has 80% lean body mass. So we multiply that by 0.8. Our male, same thing, 0.9 for 10%. And we can see that our female has 
42.7 energy availability, and then our male has a 40.6 energy availability. So both solidly in the good energy availability range. So we can also kind of do reverse math on that. And we can say, we can use our energy availability equations in order to estimate the amount of calories that you need to eat in a day. So the big caveat with this is this is the calories you need to eat in addition to what you do during exercise. So if your energy availability estimate for your intake requirements says for our athlete A, we reversed the math, we took our 45 energy availability, we multiplied it by weight in kilograms, we multiplied it by the fat-free mass, and we get 2,454 calories that our athlete A needs to eat in order to have a 45 uh, energy availability. But that is, again, that's in addition to what you burn during exercise. So if she goes for a 10-mile run, she burns 1,100 calories, then she needs to eat that 2,454 plus the 1,100. Uh, and then for our male, the males, we typically see a healthy range at the, around the 40 mark. They can be a little bit lower because males don't have the same reproductive systems that females do. And uh, Nicole is giving me the dirty look on that one. <laughs> it just means we need to, as females, which, and we don't, we need to take better care of our energy availability than most athletes do as females. Yes. Mm -hmm. So looking at our male, we math that out and it becomes 2,536 calories. So what unfortunately can happen with a lot of athletes is athletes decide that, you know, I don't need to eat that much. Or, you know, maybe you're looking at the back of those nutrition labels, especially if you're a younger athlete and you're like, oh yeah, 2000 calories, that's standard daily diet. So that's what I must need to eat, right? Well, if you're running a lot and swimming and biking a lot, then no, no, that's not what you need to eat. So what happens is a lot of athletes wind up in a chronic low energy availability. And I say chronic because sure, there are definitely going to be some days when you are in low energy availability, there's nothing you can do about it. When you do an Ironman, there's almost no chance you're going to have a good energy availability that day. No amount of food you can eat before, during, and after that workout in order to have a good energy availability, just because you're burning so much for so many hours. But what happens is a lot of athletes get stuck into this over and over and over. All right. So uh, something that a lot of us have heard of uh, in athletic endeavors and sports is REDS. Um, and that's exactly what Jake is talking about, is that relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, and unfortunately, this is a huge deal in female athletics, um, because like we were talking about before, our energy availability becomes so low for such a long period of time that we start experiencing these physiological and psychological changes to our bodies um, because of a lack of food. Essentially, if you want to boil it down to this, and this is the way I think of it, is you're starving yourself. You're not getting what your body needs to keep up with your body's, uh, your, your body's activities during the day. Um, and what that leads to is what everyone would imagine it leads to, which is, um, for me, it's depression and anxiety and irritability. And it goes really towards the mental part for me. But for other women, mm -hmm. it can take the form in stress fractures. It can take the form in injuries or chronic pain or chronic injuries or surgeries or you know, even to the point of um, broken bones or it, it goes on and on and on. And we've seen a lot of females 
in this sport break down over a course of time because their needs were not being met. Um, and it's just, it's such a simple equation. If you want to look at it from, you know, bird's eye view from way out here is there's not enough calories going in to just keep the body living its best life, as you would put it. Um, and if it can't live its best life, then it sure as heck cannot live its best life and go for a six mile run and a one hour bike in that day. If you haven't heard of RED, then maybe you've heard of the female athlete triad, which was the precursor concept prior to RED. So the female athlete triad encompassed low energy availability, bone health, because there were quite a few female athletes with really poor bone health, uh, talking stress fractures, talking DEXA scans with uh, that make their bones look like they're significantly older, and then menstrual dysfunction. So talking primary amenorrhea, never getting their period for young athletes, um, having secondary amenorrhea where their period goes away or doesn't really come back, or irregular long short periods or times in between periods. This is my favorite topic, the, the menstrual side of the house, because for men, you guys don't really get a signal that you're in deficit. You might feel irritable, or you might be hungry more of the time, or you might not sleep well, but you don't quite get the same response when you're in deficit that females do. We get, for most women, and I'm, I'm not going to include all women in this because it's certainly not true that all women will lose their periods if they go in deficit, although it is one of the number one complaints about being in res. Um, when we lose our period, we can know and understand right away that something's wrong. But doesn't losing your period just mean that you're working hard enough? <laughs> That's the biggest myth in all time. I, I want to shoot the person who started that um, and started spreading that because I think it was a way to disassociate with the thought that you weren't having a regular menstrual cycle. It was a way to put it in the back of your mind and feel good about all the training you were doing without taking care of your body on the energy availability side. Um, no, losing your period, having excessively long, short um, periods, not getting your period till you're 21, making up an age there, uh, those are all very bad signs that you're out of balance. And we'll just keep it at that very simple statement, you're out of balance. Um, and most likely, it's out of food balance. You're not eating enough to support what your body needs. And unfortunately, our, our society today has put a standard on how many calories is appropriate for someone to eat. No, I'm going to change that. Go back. Society has made a standard for what everybody no matter who you are, should eat. You could be 200 pounds lifting super heavy weights, but still have to eat 2,000 calories a day. You could be 110 pounds soaking wet triathlete who does 20 miles a day of running, still have to eat 2,000 calories. That's the, the thought process that's been injected into our society the last many, many years without deviation. And if you're eating more, we've got all these societal pushes to put in our minds, if you eat more, you'll get fat. If you eat more, you'll gain more. And no one likes someone heavy. And those pushes have come, come into the athlete world and just wreaked havoc on women's bodies. So when we talk about reds uh, and, and caloric deficiency, 
we're talking about a really, really, really big monster that needs to be tackled once and for all, that we need to get in athletes' heads, that calories are not as bad as you think. And in fact, they're they're probably what you need to be eating, what you need to be focusing on in order to stay healthy in every way. Menstrual cycles, uh, not getting osteoporosis when you're a little bit older, fertility, um, generally being healthy in your bones and muscles and staying away from injury. We see a ton of athletes get injured for the sole reason that they're training 20 hours a week with a 25 on their on their uh, energy, energy availability, availability consistently. Hey, if you have an Ironman one day and you know for sure that you have a just a really crappy energy availability number, hey, you know I I'm not judging. I've done quite a few Ironmans. I've been in that place before. You don't want to eat anything after you're done because your stomach's just hot. But to do that every day for months or for years or heck for even weeks. There are symptoms that express themselves in a way to females that should be a big, 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 big red flag for us. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason why we went from the female athlete triad to reds Mm -hmm. is because of two reasons. One, that there's a lot more that happens to your body when you're in an energy deficit than just the female athlete triad. So if you're looking at our chart there, that's reproduced from the IOC consensus statement, but it's talking gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, psychological, growth impediment, hematological, metabolic, a lot of bad stuff happens to your body. So you wind up going back to our, you know, a calorie in and a calorie out. There's a lot of variability to that. If you chronically under eat, chronically have low energy availability, your body's RMR starts decreasing. And that's not a good thing because your body's standard for your RMR is fueling important things. So it's like if your body is a city and a power grid, well, what happens is if you under eat chronically, then your body starts to shut down some of the things that it considers not essential. You're forcing your body to go out and do that 10 mile run. So it's got to go and it's got to send energy to the trains and things that are running and moving. But it decides that, you know, I'm going to shut down the hospital because. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough energy to feed the hospital. Your immune system, bye-bye. So you wind up really immunocompromised. And in COVID times, that's a really bad thing. But in non-COVID times, it's a bad thing too. A lot of athletes, my guess, here's a hypothetical situation that we see a lot of athletes go through. It's, I want to look skinny. I want to hit a good racing weight. I want to, you know, perform well. And everyone told me to perform well. I have to lose weight. So I am going to chronically eat about 2,000, 2,500 calories, despite the fact that I'm working out two hours a day, have chronic low energy availability, and chronically get sick, get colds all the time, wind up with major injuries every once in a while, you know, Achilles tendonitis, stress fractures, or just smaller things, you know, a niggle here or some kind of pain there takes you off of the run for a couple of days. And then you come back at it and then it hits flares up again. Well, constantly getting sick, constantly getting injured, and then often having really subpar performance. You started this whole journey because you wanted to perform well. And your thought process was to perform well, we have to lose weight. So by starving yourself, you wind up not performing well because 
constantly getting sick and constantly getting injured is not the way to successful training, which is the way to get to a good race. And here's the thing. Everybody reacts differently to these type of stimuluses. So if you're starving yourself uh, in, in this way, uh, chronically, whether you're male or female, you might be experiencing it in different ways. That one person who seemingly can starve themselves for years without getting injured could be the same person that hasn't had a period their entire life. But the other person standing next to them who's been doing the same chronic starvation techniques um, could be experiencing a lot of injuries, a lot of physical injuries, but has a normal period. So, and that's mostly female specific, um, but for males, the same way too. You know, males suffer from uh, bone density issues. Males suffer from irritability or if we want to even go into that uh, category, low sperm count, uh, low fertility, it affects them in the same endocrine way um, as it does females. So just because one female uh, or one athlete can seemingly do something more stressful on their body with less calories does not mean that their body is not suffering in the same way as that person who had to get surgery or went through a stress fracture or et cetera. Yeah, and that's the second reason why we went from the female athlete triad to reds is because reds happens in males too. It is significantly less common in males than in females for some societal reasons that Nicole will speak at length about momentarily. But, uh, you know, you see a fair amount in male endurance athletes and a lot of it you see in male, um, like in competitions where weight matters, uh, weight category competitions. So wrestling, boxing, things like that, where athletes are starving themselves to cut weight and make weight, then that can absolutely be a problem. One more quick tack on before we go into some examples is res is not just about your day-to-day energy intake, but it's also about your hourly energy intake. So your body, we use a day because it's an easy measure uh, to figure out how many calories you're eating over the course of the day. But even if you are in a daily energy balance, so let's say our male is eating 4,500 calories and he's, you know, he's got a 43 energy availability. Well, if he splits those 4,300 calories into a really, really big breakfast and a really big dinner and has those 12 hours apart, well, he's not going to be doing super well because he's going to have a really high incidence of uh, low energy availability relative for his body in between those massive meals. And there are a couple of studies that show that energy availability alone does not predict uh, female menstrual irregularities because a lot of it comes from your intraday energy availability. So that means when you go with one or two big meals or even three big meals for athletes that are trying to cram in 5,000 calories, well, your time in between those, those times in the day where you have low energy availability, that can be enough where you lose a period. This is where a lot of diets go wrong in saying that you can only eat two to three meals a day and no snacking. If you snack, then that's wrong and you're giving into those cravings. If you're snacking because you're hungry, it probably means you're hungry and your body needs some calories. And if we're going from 7 a.m. breakfast to 12 p.m. lunch, that's a whole five hours for your body to sit and think about (laughs) what you're doing to it. 
And there's a big difference too in the fad intermittent fasting diet yeah. and things like that for the general population that is not working out. And maybe the general population is only burning 2,000 or 2,200 calories in a day. Sure. There's a big difference in an intermittent fasting diet for a general population versus an athlete where general population, the time in between your seven to 12 is spent mostly thinking about your next meal because you're hungry. The time for an athlete spent between seven and 12 probably includes a workout, yeah. maybe two. So when you're burning more calories than that, then your calorie count or your calorie requirements are significantly higher, then it's something that you can't get away with those long periods in the day. Which is exactly why we shouldn't, as athletes, and athletes specifically should not be combining dieting with heavy intense training. Yes, absolutely. If you want to lose weight, uh, paraphrasing from the um, Well-Built Triathlete by Matt Dixon, but if you want to lose weight as a triathlete, the most, the best way to do that for most people is to train less and eat more. And uh, if we're allowed to skip into examples now, I can put one right in there about training less and eating more. We take, well, when we were living in Arizona, we were taking our off seasons in the November, December category. So we'd have a month where we did whatever we wanted. If we felt like a bike ride, we'd go for a bike ride. If we felt like a run, we'd go for a run. But there wasn't any structure and there was a lot of food because it's holidays. And consistently across the course of two or three years now, that month, I lose the most weight. Yep. It's And a lot of people can argue you're losing all that muscle that you gained over the course of your, your training season. But let's think about that realistically. Over the course of three or four weeks, am I really losing five to 10 pounds of muscle? No, no, it doesn't. You don't lose muscle that fast. What's happening is my body's getting a chance to recoup and recover. And it's taking all the calories in like, oh my gosh, like all that hard training. Now I get to recover. And it's almost releasing some of this cortisol that I've been holding on to for my whole training season. And I lose weight. It's so backwards from what society has been telling us, both as males and females, that eating less equals less weight. Yes. And you hit it on the head. The reason why is the cortisol and stress. Your body sees that hard five by one K repeats on the track as a stressor. It also sees not getting enough calories as a stressor. And your body only has one language and that's hormones. <laughs> well, it speaks the hormone of cortisol, which tells your body, I am stressed. So when you are very, very stressed and it's all of the time, then your body responds to that with a few mechanisms that are designed for our stone age ancestors who saw the glaciers coming. So where for them, it's advantageous to pack on fat maybe lose a couple of pounds of muscle because, you know, muscle burns calories, fat doesn't, fat's going to keep you warm in a long winter without food, muscle's not. Well, that's not what athletes want. Athletes want more functional muscle and less fat. So the cortisol response is going to be a little different and a little less effective. So if we apply these numbers, these deficit numbers to our athletes, let's look what that looks like. So athlete A, our female, uh, went for her six mile run, which is about 658 calories expended and her one hour swim, about a 600 calorie expenditure there. Uh, and she only ate 2,400 throughout the day. So if we put it into our calculations and I'm not going to bother trying to explain the calculations here because Jake already did and he can do it on his uh, athlete B. Um, but what that comes out to, if you put it in the equation is a 20.9 uh, calories uh, per kilogram of fat-free mass which is severely, severely in deficit, which is only appropriate for 
Ironman days. <laughs> and okay, so for athlete B, quick numbers again: 155 pound male, 10% body fat. He went for a 10 mile run, burned 1,100 calories in an hour long bike, burned another 600 calories, and ate about 3,000 calories. And that puts him at an 18.9 energy availability. And I picked those numbers on the calories consumed because they're not abnormal, which is unfortunate. So again, I will go back to, I've said it before in these podcasts, but just because it is normal does not make it right. Yeah. And so sure, it is normal for like a, a normal person would say, yeah, you know, I ate 2,400 calories. It was a big workout day, went for, you know, about a, an hour long run, an hour long swim. Sure, no problem. Except it's a big problem for your body. Yeah. And even today, like yeah. examples in both of our workouts today, um, I had a four mile run and a about an hour ish swim, um, but it was an, an intense swim at three by 500 at race pace. Um, that's almost an easy day for me to have a, a four mile run in the morning and a uh, one hour swim in the afternoon. That's a relatively easy day. I also lifted. Um, I'd say that's almost below average which means that looking at these calorie numbers here on the screen, I almost have to think, and we don't naturally count calories too often. Sometimes we'll do it to get a gauge of where we're at. Um, but when we, well, looking at these numbers, I'm going, Ooh, have I eaten enough today? You know, I, I had my breakfast, lunch, dinner, I had snacks, you know, I, I popped in there a couple of smoothies for recovery, but is that enough? Like I'm, I'm thinking in my head, Oh man, am I putting myself in deficit for chronically, you know? Yeah. That's when I'm running my, 100 mile weeks, then I'm looking at like 11,000 calories in a week that I'm burning just from running. Yeah. And like my normal day is a 10 mile run in the morning and a six mile run in the afternoon. And again, even if it's easy 10 miles and easy six miles, you're burning the same calories as if you were running for a hard 10 miles and a hard six miles. Makes sense. You know, if you're running hard 10 and you're running six minute miles, you're done in an hour versus an easy 10 that six mile or six minute miles and it takes you uh like an hour and 45 minutes then you're going slower it takes you a longer time to burn the calories but yeah you know if i'm running 16 miles in a day then i'm burning like 1750 calories just from running we need to start considering the food element and getting enough calories in as important as what we would do in a normal day to take care of ourselves. If you're into self-care, which I encourage everybody should be, um, getting the right amount of sleep, getting the right amount of food, getting the right amount of uh, time alone, if you're into that, getting the right amount of time to social time, COVID withstanding, um, you know, those things contribute to your recovery and contribute to your performance. If you're going to be doing these if we're taking you as an example, if you're going to be doing a 16-mile average day in your 100-mile week, but you neglect everything, are you really getting the benefit of your 16-mile days every day? No, because remember, your growth equation, stress plus rest equals growth. If you don't have rest, and rest includes not just sleep, which we've talked about before, but eating. Yeah. If you take an athlete and you make them go run 20 miles, they're going to be fitter. But if you don't feed them, then they're going to be hungry and tired. And the next day, even a week from there, if you don't feed them, then they're not going to race well. Yeah. It's like if I have an athlete who instead of tapering decides to go and do the biggest volume of their life the week before race week, then that's not going to be good. You're, you're declining in every way if you're not supporting your body in all the right ways for your heavy training weeks. 
and even your rest weeks. If you're doing your your four mile run a day, but you're doing it super easy, it does not exclude you from eating the right amount of calories just because it's easy. If anything, the rest weeks, the rest days are more important yeah. to hit those totals than not. Because endurance exercise does decrease your appetite. Because again, uh, survival mechanisms, your ancestors could not be bothered with hunger while they were running down wild game. Yeah. But now that's not necessarily helpful. So a lot of the time I find the rest days are the days where I'm the hungriest. Yeah, same. And if you're not eating, if you're not recovering well, then you wind up with a really fit athlete who's hungry and tired. And I don't care how fit you are. If you're hungry and tired, you're not going to perform well yeah. and not just race day. So we're not just talking your taper week, eating enough and making sure that you're getting those calories. So you race well, yeah, it's too late at that point. But <laughs> if you're not fueling properly during your training, then you're going to walk up to every key workout session, hungry, tired, glycogen depleted and you're not going to get the efforts or the results that you want out of those sessions because the way that you race fast is you train fast but you can't do five minute mile pace 1k repeats on the track if you're hungry and tired yeah or lacking motivation because you're anxious and depressed because you've been in a state of red for three weeks <laughs> yes absolutely so my last comment, and um, we didn't put this in the slides, but one comment I wanted to make on the psychological side um, of all of this, and more specific towards female athletes, but males, you can jump in on this too, is we see a lot of what should be in athletics. We see a lot, and, it, and we're bombarded. We are on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We're watching these things every day that show us what an ideal athlete should look like for your sport. Um, and I think it was Allie Kiefer, and I'll, I'll we'll source her because uh, I don't want to take her quote, um, but I put something up on my face, uh, Instagram a couple weeks ago that she mentioned, if you or a runner's body equals, a, you have a body, and you run occasionally. That's all that means. But we're bombarded with these messages that we should look a certain way because we play a certain sport or because we run a certain amount of mileage or because we do this and this and this. And it's, it's unfortunate that it hits at, uh, female athletes the hardest, which is what pushes us into eating disorders, pushes us into reds, pushes us into injury, pushes us into chronic colds and flu and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, because we, do, we don't deserve that. We're badass athletes who are capable of so much, but we're being told that what we eat equates to our personal identity and equates to being fat or, or you know, not looking good or not looking like you represent the sport that you play. Who cares? Who cares that you have a little extra fat on your hips, according to you, and, you know, but you can still keep up with everyone else and you love your sport. Who cares? You know, that this is one of those things that, you know, I will get on my soapbox every day, all day for, um, because it affects us more intimately than I think it does men. The standard of beauty and sport is extremely powerful and will push us into these extremes, these extremes that bring us down and pull us so far away from our goals. Um and I really just want to put out there as a ending statement, and we can talk just a little bit further about this, is more calories does not equal 
extra weight gain. And I'm going to repeat that for clarity and to just get it in people's heads. More calories than what you're eating now does not equal fat or weight gain or unhealthy or obese or whatever you want to, or bad body image, or doesn't look like a runner, doesn't look like a triathlete. It's just not equal. Um, and we talked extensively about the science of this today, about calories in equals calories out. But you're an athlete, and odds are almost every female athlete we've worked with has not been meeting those goals of caloric intake because they just don't quite understand that eating calories and putting in the stuff that their body needs, and I'm using that word strictly, needs, is they think that's impacting their performance in a way that is detrimental, not beneficial. And we're here to debunk that 100% and to just throw that out the window, throw it out of your mind, throw it out of your life, because it doesn't exist to serve you. It doesn't exist to benefit your performance. And if anything, it's really pulling you away from those goals that you have in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to the body image, external pressures, when you're constantly bombarded with super ripped fit looking people on Instagram that are a little bit edited, really good lighting, immediately post-workout, a little dehydrated. <laughs> like you're not getting the real world. Uh, I take some, I'm a photographer, so I've done some, uh, some like sports model photography before. And uh, when my model came in, he had just finished starving himself for three days. He just finished not drinking any water for like a day and a half. He took a little extra salt to like suck extra water out of his body even. Crazy. And he was so dehydrated and so hungry and so shredded. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the odds of you looking that shredded on a healthful diet of enough calories is, is slim. And that's okay. <laughs> and that's what you see on Instagram. Right. That's what you see on social media is that person pushing out their best day, their yeah. most ripped looking abs. You know, they've got, they're in the gym, they've already got a little pump on and they're taking that picture. Not what I wake up and see in the morning. And the weight and performance scale it's a scale mm -hmm. it is not lighter equals faster absolutely not like i am usually i am around athlete b i am you know 155 ish pounds and probably around 10 percent body fat but the last couple of weeks i've inched a little bit closer to the 160 mark but it's not because i'm getting fatter if anything mm -hmm. i look more shredded i mean i'm i've still got you know a little bit of the ice cream the, I just the runner shredded yeah yeah but it doesn't matter because my fitness, my times, my performances now are far better than they were when a couple of years ago, I was like 145 pounds for a little while. And you know what happened when I was 145 pounds? I was in low energy availability and I wound up breaking. Yeah. And which would you rather want? Do you want your PR in your half marathon or your marathon? Or do you want to look shredded? so that you can feel good about yourself looking in the mirror two days out of the week. Yes. I would always rather have an athlete that is a little bit undertrained, a little bit overfed yeah. on race day than an athlete who is overtrained yeah. or underfed. 
yeah, that's a recipe for absolute disaster. Walking in with a overtrained athlete, underfed athlete, it's just a recipe that you don't want to get mixed up in because it means that person might break. It means that person might get depressed, might fall into an eating disorder. And those are just really bad roads to go down as an athlete. And of course, you know, encourage help, getting help for those types of things if you're going down that path. Um, but let's try not going down it in the first place. And we can fix that with food. Um, so, and, and I, I look at these slides that we made too, or that you made, and the slide where we were talking about a good balance of food per day. And we'll just go to the female. Um, we're talking about a uh, 150 pound female, 20% body fat, running a six mile run and an hour swim. Um, and I'm trying to get back to this slide where you had the, yep, the calories here. So six mile run, one hour swim. At the end of the day, 3,588 calories should be consumed. Yeah. Period. Let me ask every female athlete out there. Does that sound like a lot of calories? It is a lot of calories. Does it make you freak out a little bit on the inside? Yeah, yeah, it, it probably does. Because 2,000 calories is like, the, oh my gosh, like that's a lot of calories. I should stay around that mark. Now that you know more, do better. Now that you know the truth and know what you need to stop getting colds, to stop breaking, to stop missing your periods, let's start shooting for that 3,500 calorie mark or more if you have a more intense day. I'm going to sit here and say that I'm going to speak for a lot of triathletes, female triathletes. A six-mile run in a one-hour swim day is pretty standard for athletes in the sprint, Olympic, maybe even half Ironman category. That's a pretty average day. So if 3,500 calories sounds like a lot of calories to you, that's okay. But let's work on eating that much so we can limit you breaking. <laughs> yes. And again, so... And for athletes who are maybe under eating right now and are hearing this and say, wow, I really need to change some of my behaviors. So I will brace you that you will probably gain weight over the first week of eating more calories. That's a good point. But do you know why? It's because your body is taking all of the food and the glycogen in. And for every gram of glycogen your body stores, you store two grams of water. It's the opposite of the keto diet. The yeah. keto diet is depleting you of glycogen and depleting you of water. Well, when you start refeeding yourself after you haven't been eating enough, then you're going to gain weight because you're storing glycogen, you're storing water. But those are good things. Go for yeah. a run and you burn through both of them. Right. <laughs> Maybe you just stay off the scale for the first couple of weeks. You start eating more and you just try to disassociate yourself from that factor of getting on the scale every morning or night or whenever you weigh yourself disassociate yourself so you don't feel disappointment in doing what your body needs and taking care of yourself because that's really what you're doing by eating more. So listen, listen to your body, listen to what it's saying. When you start eating more, as you've been under fueling, listen to your body and it going, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. You might be pretty full the first couple of days. Yeah. If you're chronically under eating a thousand calories a day, it's going to be a lot of food yeah. you have to take in, just a lot of volume it's going to take a little bit of an adjustment period. You're going to feel full, but listen to your energy. Listen to how you feel when you tow the track and when you tow that start line, when you hop on your bike, when you jump in the water, because your body is going to thank you. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's going to thank you long-term as well. If you continue with that, I know we've talked to a couple of athletes seeking nutrition side help um, about getting the right amount of calories in for their needs. 
And it was an immediate reaction after just a couple of days about the feeling of energy they had for workouts. And it's not that they weren't completing workouts when they were in deficit. They were pushing their bodies to do these workouts while in deficit, and they could complete them just barely, but they could complete them. But with the right amount of calories, it was almost like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I could, I could feel this good on two workouts a day. I could feel this good on a hard track workout. I could feel this good on a intense swim, which I'm not, you know, I don't favor swimming kind of thing. So if you're hungry and putting out a 250 watt threshold, then imagine what happens when your body is fueled. Yeah. Now are you at 260, 275? Yeah. Yeah. And we're not saying that, you know, after a week of eating your right amount of calories, you're going to boost your FTP by 60 watts. We're not saying that. We're just saying that you're going to probably experience less detrimental things, factors in your life um, when you're not in deficit. You're maybe going to get sick less. You're maybe not going to be on that verge of that stress fracture. Maybe your pain in your shins from the shin splints are going to go away. Maybe you're going to feel happier with your spouse when they pick you off. You know what I mean? So it's, it's the little things, but those little things are so easily fixed. Because it's your recovery. When you eat better, when you're eating more, then you recover faster. Yeah. So when you recover faster, instead of one or two key hard workouts in a week, you can do three or four. When you do three or four workouts, hard workouts, instead of one or two hard workouts in a week, you get faster. And that's the end goal. So a lot of athletes who are starving themselves, they're doing it because they want to be lighter so that they can race faster. But we lose the race faster because be lighter becomes a goal in its own, which means starve yourself, which means race slower. Isn't that the quest of all serious athletes? Recover as fast as you can so that you can get in the next hard workout so you can be better? Yeah, that's what EPO doping is about. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you recover faster. How about some food doping? Yeah. Food doping. We'll call this we'll call this blog food doping. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's simple, guys. Put in more calories and feel better, recover faster, sleep better. It's like, it's an all cure. (laughs) Well, thanks for watching. We really appreciate your time. All right. We'll see you guys next week.